Hi all! This episode of Physical Attraction is brought to you by the American National Standards Institute. Standards make the world go round, and they also dictate what is round. Without standardised measurements and definitions, physicists would be speaking to each other in different languages and would struggle to understand the universe even more than we already do. You can learn about standards in America at the ANSI blog at blog.ansi.org pod to learn about how standards apply to you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we're finishing our series on Isaac Newton. This is episode 4, Mercury, Alchemy, Legacy. In the last episode, we talked about Newton's greatest achievement, the Principia Mathematica, which dealt with his laws of motion and the law of universal gravitation, which means that you're all attracted to me whether you like it or not. This episode, we'll talk about the rest of his life and career, and try to assess the legacy of such an influential physicist. If he was a physicist. The French writer and philosopher Voltaire, who was in London at the time of Newton's funeral, said that he was, quote, never sensible to any passion, was not subject to the common frailties of mankind, nor had any commerce with women, a circumstance which was assured me by the physician and surgeon who attended to him in his last moments. So there are a couple of questions here. How did the surgeon know? Why on earth is Voltaire at Newton's deathbed saying, give it to me straight, doc, did he do the deed? But anyway. So, you know, if you're single and anyone asks you why, you can always try to tell them that you're simply, quote, not subject to the common frailties of mankind. And when they're done laughing at you, you can cite Newton as an influence. Anyway. Since we are a podcast about chatted lines as well as physics, it's time to quickly rake up Newton's personal life before we do the proper thing and focus on his career. Because there is some evidence that he was possibly intimately involved with a fellow mathematician, Nicholas Fatio de Douai. He drifted into Newton's orbit in the 1690s. Now at this point, Newton had already published the Principia, and he was the closest thing to a rock star that you're going to get in terms of the natural philosophers of that era. Douay was clearly starstruck. I want to pinch a line from H2G2, which is a the online encyclopedia maintained by Douglas Adams fans that has all kinds of entries. Please enjoy the guide if you can. It's like Wikipedia's crazy uncle, and it lives on this obscure part of the BBC that I don't think anyone visits anymore. Anyway, they comment on the relationship like this. There is little doubt that Fatia was starstruck by the older man. A modern tongue might even go so far as to call him a groupie. There are existing letters between Fatio and Newton that do hint at a romantic relationship, even more than the social mores of the time would probably allow. Quote, the reasons I should not marry will probably last as long as my life, wrote Fatio, and then later, I could wish, sir, to live all my life, or the greatest part of it, with you. Newton responded with gifts of cash and offers of accommodation in or near his own rooms. Given Newton's devout religious beliefs and the social mores of the time, it's possible that Newton couldn't express his true feelings, or it's possible that Fatia was a groupie, and while Newton was perfectly willing to display some affection towards people, he didn't quite reciprocate all of Fatia's feelings. Unfortunately, at some point things went south. Fatia and Newton stopped communicating with each other, and Fatia would later have another close same-sex relationship with a quack doctor. And to add more circumstantial gossip evidence to these rumours, we should mention that Newton's nervous breakdown 
which was what led him to send that nasty letter to his friend that we discussed a few episodes back about embroiling him with women, shortly followed from the end of this relationship. Now really, beyond that, there's not much more you can say. If it is the case that Newton wasn't celibate out of a sort of monastic choice and devotion to science, but instead because of the social pressures of the day, I think it's a tragedy. But unless new evidence comes to light, we'll probably never know. It's one for the gossip mills of history. And officially, Newton was probably asexual. And it does fit with various aspects of his character and personality that we seem to see. He didn't get on with people that well. He wasn't completely socialised. And he was perhaps tempestuous with his temper and personal relationships, as we see with the disputes that he had in Scientists. And yet also, he was fanatically devoted to his work. So you can believe it, perhaps. But really, we'll never know. There is another reason for Newton's nervous breakdown that we can point to. After Newton died, it was discovered that his hair contained much more mercury than normal, around 15 times the usual sample. He was also contaminated with lead, antimony, and arsenic. It seems likely that Newton's alchemical studies, attempting to turn base elements into gold, had led to him suffering from chronic heavy metal poisoning. That's not an overdose of Metallica, by the way, that is the poisoning due to the heavy metals in the periodic table. The body can't deal especially well with these heavy metals, and there's lots of evidence that they cause brain damage, amongst other things. For example, the expression, as mad as a hatter, has a tragic history. Hat makers used to use mercury in their trade, and it often caused this heavy metal poisoning. Similarly, someone who is irrational or has violent mood swings is often called mercurial for the same reason. And since I know there are podcast fans out there listening to this podcast, those of you who've listened to S-Town, spoiler alert, will remember that this may have played a part in that story too. Newton wasn't just inhaling mercury by accident though, he actually documented over 108 metals by tasting them, which we now know is a wildly unsafe thing to do. We even have evidence in Newton's own hand that he was chomping mercury. He described the taste as strong, sourish, and ungrateful. Newton's nervous breakdown included physical symptoms that are very similar to mercury poisoning. It almost certainly contributed to his instability later in life. And if so, that's another quiet tragedy that comes from a lack of understanding. Just goes to show, it's important that we get this right. By this stage, Newton was 55, and he had achieved worldwide fame for his achievements in physics and with the Principia. Typically, at that time, notable people would be given a cushy role, or sinecure, as a mark of respect for their careers. Usually, this was to denote that you'd been honoured by the state. It let you draw a nice little salary without doing too much work, and there was a lot of prestige attached to it. Sometimes, these positions would be used as rewards by those in power for their loyal servants. Newton's sinecure was being made Warden of the Royal Mint. For those of you who don't know, the Royal Mint is where Britain makes its currency. Newton didn't see this as a cushy job, though. He took his responsibilities very seriously. You have to remember that at the time, and for thousands of years before, the principles of economics that we take for granted today weren't really understood. This stretches all the way back to the Roman Empire and before, like us, they have the problem of inflation. The more money you print, the more money that's in circulation, the less that money is actually worth. And broadly, it's this sort of process that means that prices gradually go up, 
and are measured in Britain by the price of a freddo. Nowadays we basically understand that the value of money is a psychological thing. It's a little bit strange when you think about it how much of the economic system purely is based on psychology. And this explains of course why you can have stock market crashes. After all, stock market crashes are very rarely caused due to the underlying assets changing substantively. That is to say, nothing is destroyed to cause a stock market crash. There is no loss in value per se. There's just a loss in the perception of value. But we understand that the value of money is a psychological thing. Our coins are made of cheap metals, and we're happy to use paper notes that can't be exchanged for lumps of gold. In fact, most of our money is sometimes worryingly just numbers on a screen. The value of money is something that's generally agreed upon. If you're lucky enough to have a £10 note, you can see that it says, I promise to pay the bearer £10. It's an IOU note for the actual gold. But if you showed up in your local bank and demanded a lump of gold, they'll laugh at you, of course, but that was the original idea. Back in the day, though, they didn't understand that the value of money was based on this common consensus type argument. Instead, people thought the value of money was based on the value of the metal that the money was made out of, which makes more sense, really. This caused serious problems in the Roman Empire, where cheap emperors would make the coins out of less and less precious metal, called debasement. And when people realised there would be a financial crisis as a result, with people concerned that their money was literally worthless. And once people stop trusting the money, then it loses value. England, when Isaac Newton became head of the mint, was about to face a similar crisis. So inflation at this time had meant that, bizarrely, the face value of a coin was worth less than the metal it was made out of. Rather than spending your coins, you were better off melting them down and selling the silver. People would clip the edges off coins to sell that silver, and then spend the coin with the edges clipped off, and double your money. Forgery was common, although you did need an actual forge for forgery, with people producing debased, low silver coins and passing them off as real. And to make matters worse, Britain was running out of silver and coins, as people melted them down and sold the silver abroad. To cap it all off, they were in some very costly wars with France, and if you can't pay your soldiers, or they think the coins they're being paid with are worthless, well, there's plenty of headless Roman emperors you can ask about that. Newton had a very simple but radical solution to this crisis. Print more money. You may feel that this is a stupid way to solve a financial crisis involving inflation, but you have to remember that at the time they hadn't invented fancy-pants terms like quantitative easing. Boom, take that, Keynes! So here was the plan. Recall all of the coins and issue new ones with a value that was set by their silver content. You can see that Newton still didn't understand why the value of currency is what it is, but similar solutions had sort of worked for problems in the past. After all, when you recall all the money, you also reset the psychology, right? People suddenly think, okay, these new coins are the real deal and they've solved all the problems of forgery that are causing this issue, and so it's not a ridiculous solution. Unfortunately, the job of recalling all of a nation's currency and replacing it by a new type of coin turned out to be a really, really big job. The issue was that the mint couldn't produce the coins quickly enough to replace the ones that had been withdrawn from circulation. 1696 was the height of the collapse. With barely enough money circulating in the system, people were reduced to bartering for goods and services in the old style. Seven chickens for my wooden barrel, that type of bartering. Newton had to get down and dirty in the mint itself, taking up some cramped lodgings in London. In a sense, he kind of invented the much maligned profession of management consultancy. He went through the mint's operations, worked out where the inefficiencies were, changed things around. And under Newton, the mint 
went from producing £15,000 in 1690s money to £100,000, and eventually the fiscal collapse was staved off. He moved the currency onto the gold standard, which helped to stabilise things further at the time. Alongside this, he was actively involved in the prosecution of forgers. In the 17th century, forgery was a capital crime, punishable by death. And not just any old death, being hung, drawn and quartered, which for those outside the UK, involves a bit of hanging, a bit of intestinal extraction, and then some basic division. Newton personally interrogated some of the forgers, and when particularly rich people tried to evade justice by bribing the officials and judges, Newton was able to bring some of the forgers to justice. I think his time at the Royal Mint is a good indication of his overall personality, and his abilities ruthlessly dedicated, single-mindedly capable of pursuing his goals, and extremely well organised. Finally, I want to talk about alchemy. In our previous episodes, we've mentioned how the study of astronomy was essentially motivated by the superstitions of astrology as much as it was motivated by anything else. People didn't necessarily recognise the value of science for the sake of science. You have to remember that it was only a century after this that Benjamin Franklin was doing all of his experiments on electricity, and people said, well, what's the use of this, when he was experimenting with lightning? And he said, well, what use is a newborn baby? Scientists would probably argue that people still don't appreciate the value of pure research today, but that's another topic. So just as astronomers could convince people to pay them to study the heavens by telling them that, with astrology, they'd be able to tell the future, it was also the case that early chemists managed to convince people that chemistry was a worthwhile pursuit by talking about alchemy, the ability to turn ordinary metals into gold. Newton was fascinated by alchemy. Many of his papers on the subject were destroyed in a fire, but we know that he wrote over a million words on the topic. It's possible the fire was intentional, because the study of alchemy was actually illegal in England. And you can see why, too. I mean, we've just talked about how the whole currency system is based on the value of these metals, gold and silver. So if anyone discovers the secret to changing metals into gold, they'd be unimaginably wealthy and powerful. Alchemy was a threat to national security, so Newton had to pursue it in secret. What Newton was attempting to find was nothing less than the Philosopher's Stone, the fabled substance that would allow for these magical transformations to take place. It could lead to gold, produce the elixir of life that would lead to immortality, and transform the author of books about a boy wizard into a global celebrity and a multimillionaire. Newton had an interest in history, and he wrote a chronology of ancient events. In Newton's day, people were still trying to make sense of all of the documents that have come down to them from the ancients unsure of what happened first and what happened last. Indeed, there are still some people today who try to come up with alternative chronologies, like the Fomenko chronology. If you're interested in conspiracy theories and history, look that up, because some of the claims he makes are absolutely wild. Newton also intensely studied the Bible, and he was obsessed with drawing the secrets of alchemy, mathematics, or physics from the writings of the Bible. He felt sure that all of the fields, all of the disciplines that he was studying, were connected, and the connection was in the Bible. And he felt sure that hidden, encoded in the word of God, were secrets that would allow mankind to prosper or perish. While a lot of people say that he predicted the end of the world to take place in 2060, he actually said that he'd calculated that it wouldn't take place before 2060. Quite a bold claim. And he also frequently refers to the passage of the Bible that says that it's not for us to know the hour of the second coming of Jesus, so he probably would have thought that making a prediction about the precise date would be arrogant. P. 
People often present this alchemy and this biblical obsession as a shameful dark side of Newton's character, irrelevant nonsense that he also believed in, superstition, while he was advancing physics. But I think this is unfair. For a start, we already talked about how his belief in the occult meant that it was easier for him to accept the weirdness of gravity, a spooky force that can act over any distance, compared to some of his contemporaries. And in many ways, his theories on light were also influenced by his occult readings. The idea that white light contained all of the different colours of light, and that a prism would allow you to separate them out. Well, this was somewhat similar to the idea that matter contained within it all the other forms of matter, and the Philosopher's Stone would allow you to extract the golden part, separate it out from the base metals. Alongside the fact that the occult beliefs may have helped his physics, we need to understand the world as it was at Newton's time. The scientific method was a source of truth, but it was not automatically accepted as the only source of truth. If you believe that the Bible is the word of a divine being, and surely it only makes sense to search for clues there, a deeper sort of truth. For Newton, as is the case for many scientists today, his discoveries in physics did not shake his faith in any way. Instead, it was all a manifestation of God's divine grace. He said, quote, The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and the comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. In some ways, Newton wasn't so much a physicist as a seeker of truth. To him, with so much of the nature of reality invisible and poorly understood, all of his studies were worth pursuing. After all, it's only afterwards that we've picked and chosen parts of them that we recognise to be true with more detailed experiment and rigorous thinking. But to Newton, all of his studies were parts of a bigger whole. Physics, mathematics, alchemy, religion patches in the quilt of the universe that all contributed to our understanding. In each field, he felt like he was approaching the truth. It was this, above all things. Plato is my friend, Aristotle is my friend, but my best friend is the truth, that motivated Newton until the end of his days. Isaac Newton, knighted by the Queen, died in 1727 in his sleep. He had lived a good life, and a long life, he was buried alongside royalty in Westminster Abbey, and his legacy will always be with us. What did Newton achieve? He laid the foundations for modern physics. With the principles of Newtonian mechanics carefully applied, you can calculate all kinds of motions in the day-to-day -day world. And Newtonian gravity is good enough for us to map out the solar system and understand how gravity works on Earth, to an astonishing degree of accuracy. Without Newton, perhaps others would have discovered his laws, maybe a little from his rivals like Hooke and Huygens, but it would have taken longer, and history would be deprived of a towering genius. And also, the ideas of the scientific method that Galileo and Newton were proponents of, early proponents of, became more and more embedded in the system as people realised just how useful they could be. It seemed like these guys were onto something. And Newton cast such a long shadow over our cultural and social history, in him, we see one of the very early examples of the mad scientist. The figure who sees things that others don't, perceives things that others don't, through painstaking, endless work, slaving away, manages to unlock some of the secrets of the universe, although socially, he may leave a little bit to be desired. 
The famous economist John Maynard Keynes, whose theory of Keynesian economics, for better or worse, governs much of how we think about economics in the modern world, has this to say about Newton. He said, quote, In the 18th century and since, Newton came to be thought of as the first and greatest of the modern age of scientists, a rationalist, one who taught us to think on the lines of cold and untinctured reason. But I do not see him in this light. I do not think that anyone who has poured over the contents of that box, which he packed up when he finally left Cambridge in 1696, and which, though partly dispersed, have come down to us, can see him like that. Newton was not the first of the age of reason. He was the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, the last great mind which looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago. Isaac Newton, a posthumous child born with no father on Christmas Day, 1642, was the last wonder child to whom the Magi could do sincere and appropriate homage. And I think Keynes has a really good point here. What he's saying is that when we look at Newton, when we judge his legacy, we have to understand that everyone who came after him built on what he did. But Newton, Newton didn't build on all that much. There were a few things. But in much of science, what existed before Newton was just what Aristotle had said thousands of years ago. And that's what Keynes means when he says that he looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build their intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago. He was the last of the non-scientists. The inscription on the base of his tomb reads... Here is buried Isaac Newton, knight, who by a strength of mind almost divine and mathematical principles peculiarly his own, explored the course and figures of the planets, the parts of comets, the tides of the sea, the dissimilarities in the rays of light, and what no other scholar has previously imagined, the properties of the colours thus produced. Diligent, sagacious and faithful, in his expositions of nature, antiquity, and the holy scriptures, he vindicated by his philosophy the majesty of God, mighty and good, and expressed the simplicity of the gospel in his manners. Mortals rejoice that there has existed such and so great an ornament of the human race. End quote. Newton, meanwhile, learned the lesson of many scholars. The more you study something, the closer you come to understanding it, the more you realise the vast quantity of what you don't know. He said of his own life, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore, and diverting myself now and then, finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. And so I wrote him a quick poem based on that quote. The sun rises and on the beach there's a little child gathering shells. He finds one here, nearby the creek. He finds another amongst the rock pools. The prettiest shells he knows by sight, the ones that will fit in his collection, and arranges them all by a logic known at first only to him, which, upon closer inspection, reveals itself to any traveller who cares to pass. It could be that the seashells, which once were home to crabs and sea creatures divine, now chart a map of the stars and the heavens above, or else the dance of the grains of sand in the wind. The sun goes down, the child goes home, the tide comes in, the world turns, but the shells remain.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can follow us on Twitter, at PhysicsPod. Find us on Facebook, Physical Attraction. We've got a page and a discussion group. It's pretty good going. You can donate to the show, www.paypal.me slash physicspod. Please, if you've enjoyed it, like us, review us on iTunes, helps get us noticed. But if you can't do any of those things that I've just mentioned, tell one person. Tell one person about the show. Because if we keep going, then within a few weeks, within a few months, we'll have over a trillion listeners, and I think that would just be radical. If you have any questions or any topics that you'd like to see on future episodes of the show, then you can email us at physicspod@outlook.com, or you can contact us on Twitter. I'm on there far more often than I should be. Or you can go to the website, www.physicspodcast.com, where every episode has a comment section. I read all those comments, so if you have any comments that you want to make about the show, any questions you want to ask for a future Listener Questions episode, that's the place to go because I'll see it. Until next time, be kind to each other, and keep picking up seashells.